1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, and today we bring you part five of our special documentary series, The Sunday Shows at 50. This week is The Andrew Marr Show. 2022 marks 50 years since the launch of Weekend World, the flagship Sunday political programme, which paved the way for everyone that followed. It kick-started a broadcasting arms race, which meant that often what happened on the Sunday sofa was more important than what happened in the Houses of Parliament. This is the story of how political and journalistic careers were made and broken, even how elections were won and lost. Last week, we looked at the explosion of Sunday shows in the early noughties. This week, it's 2005, and after more than a decade of breakfast with Frost, it's time to spend Sunday mornings with Andrew Marr.
0: Hello and good
1: afternoon. Welcome. Good morning. Hello and welcome. Good morning.
0: I'd always been very, very clear that I couldn't do TV. I don't accept that at all. Um, You're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? There are times when Boris Johnson is impossible to interview. Well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to cover. I take a quiet pride in the number of other Sunday morning programmes we've seen off. In 2005,
1: Tony Blair became the longest serving Labour Prime Minister and then won his third election landslide. David Cameron was Shadow Education Secretary. Nick Clegg had only just become an MP. Boris Johnson was on the back benches after being sacked for lying about his love life. The banks were still splashing the cheap cash. Britain was still in the EU. And nobody had heard of coronavirus. But what was about to happen to British politics is best summed up by the biggest hit of the year. Mr David Foss, the global superstar who broke records through his trips on Concord and had interviewed Nixon, his time at the BBC was coming to an end. Top of
0: the morning. Good morning.
1: His departure was as genial as you would expect, but behind the scenes he'd been eased out of his berth on the Sunday political sofa. After 12 years, Breakfast with Frost was axed, Following years of grumbling about his soft, although not ineffective, interviewing style, journalistic big beasts at ITV and the BBC had their eye on the Sunday morning slot, which eventually went to the BBC's political editor, Andrew Marr.
0: Well, I'd always been very, very clear that I couldn't do TV, partly because I looked weird. You know, famously being described as the FA Cup in in, in a shirt uh, and all of that stuff. I never, I, I honestly never thought I was end up on TV. After a turbulent time as editor of The Independent, he was working as a columnist
1: in 2000 when the BBC asked him to become political editor. Five years later, he was called up
0: to replace Frost. So the BBC came to me and said, look, you know, we're going to make a change on Sunday. Would you be interested in doing it? And I said, of course I would. um, And jumped in and found it much harder than I expected, I have to be honest with you. Um, because I had been used to doing endless political commentary at great speed, off the cuff, on TV, radio, online by then as well. So I know how to talk, as you know how to talk, put it that way. But suddenly having to do one high profile interview after another in live time with somebody in your ear, giving you timings and instructions about cameras and all of the technical gubbins that goes with live TV. I think David Frost had been doing this since he was about five years old. It was second nature to him and very, very easy. It wasn't for me. And it took me a while to get going. I didn't think about it enough, really. And probably if I had done, maybe I wouldn't have done it. Um, I used to say it's easier to do this job than than learning to ride a bicycle, but it's harder than learning to play the piano. It's somewhere in the middle of that.
1: Once again, the corporation that brought us such imaginative show titles as The
0: Politics Show spent ages agonising about what to call it. The name, I think, was chosen because if I proved to be useless, they could get rid of me and carry on calling it Sunday AM. So it was a nod to Andrew, but only a nod. Eventually, the BBC decided Mark was going
1: to be a permanent fixture and Sunday AM became... The Andrew Marr Show. It was a vote of confidence when they changed the name. Where global superstar Frost was known to drive into the BBC in his Rolls Royce, Andrew Marr was shown in the title sequence behind the wheel of a light blue Nissan Figaro. <laughs> Among those crafting the new show's look was editor Barney Jones, who transferred from Breakfast with Frost... To the Andrew Marshall.
0: It's Sunday morning.
1: You know, people are half asleep. I wanted to get them into it. It's very different from if you're doing half an hour of panorama. I was very, very aware of what the audience was and how you would ease them into watching TV when they might want to be staying in bed or going off for a wander. Later when the show moved from TV centre to broadcasting house, a new title sequence was required. And the car was downgraded.
0: Rather than doing something different with the same car, we got a little moped painted
1: the same colour as the car and had him zipping around in his moped. So a
0: variation on the theme.
1: So the BBC decided the name and the opening sequence. Then came the set. Unlike Frost's cosy front room, this was a slicker, more modern look. Although it still had a sofa for the guests and put Andrew Mar in an armchair. Just one
0: problem. Where does he put his script? There was a big debate about this, big arguments about this with different editors. I don't particularly like the style of interview where I'm looking at down like that and then I look up. I find as a viewer, it's quite distracting when you see somebody reading from a sheet of questions. I mean, David Frost very often would drop eye contact completely and look completely away while he was asking a question. And as somebody on the other end of that, I find that very unsettling and and unnatural. Uh, In the old days, I was sitting, you know, in a kind of, as it were, an easy chair with a low desk. I had the choice of having a piece of paper in my hand or not having a piece of paper. And I chose not to have a piece of paper in my hand. And that frustrated, I think, some of the editors and researchers who thought maybe I jumped over a question or I hadn't got the exact question that they'd been thinking about right or whatever it might be.
1: And then along came the COVID pandemic. The Mars Show moved to the BBC News Studio
0: and with it, the Newsreader's Desk. I've now realised, rather late in the day, that if you've got, I don't know, the Home Secretary, uh, or whoever it is, on the other side of the, the, the table, and you then pick up a piece of paper, and you put your spectacles on, you say, but let me read you what you said in 2010, you said this, it provides a certain amount of kind of drama and frisson, and actually that helps.
1: The presenter in place, the titles, the set, and the style decided, but as we found out, these programmes depend most of all on getting the big names. And on that, Mao and his team succeeded.
0: I have very, very vivid memories of interviewing Vladimir Putin during the Sochi Winter Olympics, where we were up a mountain in a kind of slightly sort of James Bond villain ski chalet type. Thing, and he was coming in to be interviewed. We, we talked at great length about gay rights, but I still don't understand completely your own view. If I was our most prominent actor, Sir Ian McKellen, and I was saying, if I was standing, he was standing here, and said, do you have a personal problem with gay people? Are you happy to work closely with gay people? Do you feel that gay people are being discriminated against in Russia? What would you tell him? If you want my personal attitude, I would tell you that I don't care about a person's orientation.
1: And I myself know some people who are gay. We are on friendly terms. I'm not prejudiced in any way.
0: And we were surrounded by a lot of high-quality, hardcore Russian journalists. And what I really remember is that he was coming in by helicopter and about... Two or three minutes before he arrived, they all started to shake with fear. And he was perfectly uh, affable to me and we got on fine. But the people who knew him were literally shaking with agitation.
1: Then in 2011, Andrew Marr got the call to interview Barack Obama ahead of his state visit to Ireland
0: and the UK. At the White House, you have a very, very short amount of time. You have to be absolutely to the second or they get very angry. And we were there and I had Barney in my ear in the next room, you know, with a with a short radio wave telling me what the times were, uh, giving me the, the countdown. But what we had forgotten, of course, is wherever the American president goes, they have a little device which destroys all shortwave radio communication. So there can't be a bomb going off. So within 30 seconds of the interview starting, Barney vanished from my ear. And I really wanted to ask you just met the Queen. I wanted to ask him about that. David Cameron um, has the opportunity every week to sit down with the Queen. I think the first president that she remembers was Truman, okay. uh, and then Eisenhower and so on. It's a completely private conversation. No notes, no microphones. Um, do you have anyone you can have that kind of conversation with? Would you like there to be somebody with that sense of history that you could just totally privately shoot the breeze with? Well, uh, I don't know if anybody shoots the breeze with uh, Her Majesty the Queen. but <laughs> Perhaps uh, not. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But, uh, and as we got to that great, bit, uh, his security guys were coming behind the camera, shaking their heads and doing this and more or less pulling the cameraman away. They were absolutely furious, gone over by two minutes or something like that. Well, the talking has been very enjoyable, Mr. President. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. And my punishment was I never got the photograph of walking along the corridor with Obama.
1: The Russians had Putin, the Americans had Obama, but this time the British had Gordon Brown. After 16 years on air, says Brown still ranks as one of the hardest politicians to interview.
0: Gordon would, would go into very, very detailed, long, factual and, and increasingly irate answers and just would not address questions. However, however, however you put them, if he didn't want to talk about it, he wouldn't talk about it. One
1: thing he really, really didn't want to talk about was bottling the 2007 election. Brown secured double-digit poll leads over the Tories after replacing Tony Blair in June 2007, and speculation about him calling a snap election refused to die down. Following an impressive party conference, Labour put staff on an election footing, even booking helicopter slots for visits. Then David Cameron's Tories had a good conference of their own. The Shadow Chancellor, George Osborne, vowed to cut inheritance tax. The polls turned and Brown panicked, summoning Andrew Myers to Number 10 to tell him and the nation.
0: So, yes, I think I had a responsibility to consider it, to to listen to what people were saying, to listen to what the opposition parties were saying, to listen to what people in my own party wanting an election were saying, to listen to the public, who I I believe the public, their priority was not an election, but that we got on with the job. But having made the decision, I made it for the reasons I'm saying. I want a chance to show the country that we have a vision for the future of this country. The dithering which will be the accusation. I don't accept that at all. Um, I don't, I don't accept it at all. I said, I so said, that, uh, will diminish. that will diminish. You're going to take a hit for a while. But well, I don't accept that. The party conference no. season is one thing, and people will speculate in the party conference seasons. You in
1: the autumn of 2009, vote. he was in trouble. There was a general election due in a matter of months, and he was in Brighton for the start of what would be his last party conference as Prime Minister. Rumours have been swirling about his behaviour without anything being confirmed
0: publicly. So Ma decided to confront him live on BBC One. What we knew, what I knew for sure, because I talked to lots of people who'd been in and out of Downing Street and working closely with him, was that there were huge temper tantrums at the time, really, really eru- big eruptions of, of, of temper. Um, and that was a problem in Number 10 under him. And that was what I was getting to. And if I had said to him, Prime Minister, you have lost your temper multiple times and thrown things in Number 10, that's... You know, that he he could have been as angry as he liked, but there would have been no problem, no question. But in the end, Mark chose to ask a different question, one that did
1: lead to problems.
0: Uh, Let me ask you about something else which everybody has been talking about out there in the Westminster village, um, which a lot of people in this country uh, use prescription painkillers and uh, pills to help them get through. Are you one of those people? Now, I had picked up from a couple of other journalists and from the internet that there Was a suggestion that he was using pills to calm him down. I should have checked that out better because, I, as far as I can tell, there was there was no evidence of that at all. But you know, again, you ask lots of people questions that for which there is no evidence, and they can say, "No, that's not true." Brown was not impressed. No, I, I think this is uh, the sort of questioning that um, is. Uh, it's a fair question. It's all too often entering the, the lexicon of British uh, politics. With hindsight, Marr thinks the Rao was actually egged up by number 10. At the time, there was mild irritation on his face. Afterwards, he was, I would say, affable and cheerful. And it was only an hour later that the story erupted. Um, it was an interview in which I had been pressing him really hard. And it's a series of interviews on the same subject, on the theme of you did not regulate the city properly before the crash, when the, the, the financial crash hit you were partly to blame because you hadn't, the regulation wasn't right. And he hated that line of questioning and disagreed with it fundamentally. But I had got just a little chink from him during that interview. And I thought, wow, that's the story. Well, it wasn't the story because the pills were the story. And I still wonder whether there wasn't a bit of a number 10 operation diverting people from the more damaging big story to something that was, in a sense, sympathetic to Gordon. This is the Sunday Shows
1: at 50. Next, Andrew Marr on why he decided to quit the Sunday Sofa.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: This is the Sunday Shows at 50, this week taking a look at the Andrew Marr Show. Perhaps one of the most memorable moments on the Marr Show happened when Marr wasn't there. In 2013, he suffered a stroke and was off air for about nine months. Eddie Mayer was guest hosting that week. The then-Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, appeared and was reminded of his past misdemeanours. What does that say about you, Boris Johnson? Well, aren't you, it? in fact,
0: making up quotes, lying to your party leader... Wanting to be part well, of uh, yeah. someone being physically assaulted, you're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? Well, I, you know, Eddie, I think, I think,
1: all, all three things, I would, I would dispute. To say that this was not how things were usually done is an understatement. This is the assessment of David Ivanovich, who worked on Weekend World and edited On The Record. Well, that's not a question we'd have asked back in the day. And that happened in the, uh, you know, the morning political slot. So that, that kind of thing is very, very unusual. Ma
0: himself interviewed Johnson many times with varying degrees of success. It depends on his mood. There are times when Boris Johnson is impossible to interview because he just doesn't shut up. And he doesn't address the question at all. And he just goes at you like a bulldozer uh, at warp speed. And you either have a shouting match to to stop him, which I have done, which is horrible viewing uh, and the viewers really don't like at all or you just let yourself be rolled over, which, again, is not really my job. Third area. I, I, we, we do need to move on. have got a lot to cover. Well, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to cover. Well, no, third, I'm, third I, area. I, I get to ask. It's not, not the Boris Johnson show. It's the Andrew Marshall. I get born. to ask the questions. Now, All right. Single you year, have sovereignty. Thank you. I have complete sovereignty over this programme. Unlike single, the UK. The single market. You know, gonna... Boris Johnson has a hugely impressed... A sense of his own verbal dexterity. He loves his own jokes. He loves the rhythm of his sentences and he loves his own shtick. You know, getting past that is tough. If things are sometimes tense on screen, that's nothing compared to relations with the spin doctors hovering behind the cameras. Every editor has had trouble with number 10. We've had lots and lots of trouble with number 10 spin doctors all the way through trying to say, well, if you, if you, don't, if you ask those kind of questions, of course, you won't come on again at party conference time. and We'll go to Sky instead or And and so on. There's always been pressure, and I think there always will be. So it's it's an an endless, slightly graceless dance, I would say. Part of the problem with Downing
1: Street controlling who appears and who doesn't is that often the minister sent out onto the airwaves has nothing to do with the story of the day. More recently, you would have had, say, the transport secretary being grilled about the availability of COVID tests during David Cameron's premiership. That job often fell to safe pair of hands. William Hague.
0: When I was Foreign Secretary, uh, obviously I was immersed in foreign affairs that
1: occupied me eighteen hours a day, but, and I free I, more Sundays than not. I think I ended up on the Sunday morning shows, but usually the reason was because Downing Street thought I was fairly good at calming everybody down about some domestic uh, issue. So you're exactly right. Instead of asking me what I was immersed in every day and knew a reasonable amount about, I would be. The one who could state the line to take about whatever other trouble had happened in the government. In the Brown era, he often had to rely on Peter Mandelson.
0: I did enjoy these interviews, and I enjoyed going on uh, on a Sunday. Probably the most challenging were when I was, as it were, the political anchor man uh, for Gordon Brown after he'd brought me back to government and. I effectively became his number two, certainly, you know, his main uh, shield and defender. I remember a particularly feisty interview with Andrew Marr one Sunday after a particularly difficult week. And I knew I was on a very sticky wicket. And I just judged that the only way (laughs) to uh, survive and to push back was to become, you know, quite aggressive. And I started interviewing Andrew.
1: Even getting through the interview didn't mean the ordeal was over for the politicians. A self confessed lovey, Ma often had music at the end of his show. One Sunday in early 2016, David Cameron had to sit on the sofa and grimace just a few metres from the band's squeeze as they changed some of their lyrics to criticise his benefit changes. I do
0: nothing,
1: Despite all those big names, there were some guests that Ma never quite
0: landed. Bob Dylan um, wouldn't do it. <laughs> he hasn't ever done it. We, we tried very hard with Trump, um, never got anywhere near him. I think that he just didn't want to do the BBC. Um, I would love, obviously, to do Biden, but almost more than Biden, Kamala Harris would be quite high up my list.
1: And then late last year, it was announced that Andrew Marr wanted his Sunday mornings back for himself after 16 years on air. So David Frost only managed 12 on BBC One, although well, if you add in his TVAM show, he spent 22 years waking up politicians on a Sunday. Ma definitely had the more dramatic political run. Four elections, five prime ministers, chronicling Tony Blair's swan song, the rise and fall of Gordon Brown, the coalition and austerity, the Scottish referendum, David Cameron's EU referendum, strong and stable Theresa May, Boris Johnson getting Brexit done, and then the pandemic. By 2021, after such a turbulent time, anyone would have picked up a few bad habits.
0: So I've been doing this job for 16, I think nearly 17 years, every Sunday. Nobody should do a job like this for that long. And I don't want to be a professional journalistic bed blocker. You know, there's lots of other really, really great people, really good people inside the BBC and outside the BBC who would love to have a crack at it.
1: We still don't know who his successor will be. Sophie Wayworth is standing in, but Michelle Issein is still in the running. Emily Maitlis and John Sopel are not. And will it be Laura Koonsberg? Whoever gets the job, what's Andrew Marr's advice for his successor?
0: I'd introduce superficial change. There'd be a different face, a different name, different music, maybe a slightly different set, all that kind of thing. But I would not change the format. If I can be boastful for a second, we've, got the, we've just had the highest viewing figures we've ever had the last six months, uh, up to 3 million a lot of the time. There, are, there have been weeks when we've had nearly 50% of everybody watching TV at the time watching that show. In the world of multiple channels and the streamers and all the rest of it, that's pretty remarkable. And therefore, I would, I would think it's still working quite effectively. And don't change it too much, please, Tim.
1: Andrew Marr's advice to BBC Director-General Tim Davey.
0: There is quite an intense rivalry. I take a quiet pride, and I'm not going to list it here, in the number of other Sunday morning programmes we've seen off, but I don't talk about that very much. And I would say that in Sophie Ridge's show, um, we have one of the most professional and effective rivals we've ever had. Next week,
1: the last Sunday show standing. Sky News' Sophie Ridge on Sunday, how she went from a showbiz reporter to grilling the Prime Minister, and how one question left her without any guests. I realised at that point that something had gone down,
0: basically. I don't think from Theresa May, but I think from the advisors around her, have quite specific breakfast requirements, a massive plate of about
1: 20, 20, 25 hash browns.